I always felt I was polyamorous, but I didn't know what that meant. I just thought I was a dog or a jerk. Seen some arranged marriages that don't work out and some that have, and we were one of the lucky ones. I love being with you. Yeah. But I don't need to be with you all the time. It's not for everybody, but I think it's for a lot more people than they care to admit. Polyamory, sexless marriages, arranged marriages, couples who willingly live apart. These may seem like odd relationship models, but they're more common in Canada than you may think. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. There's something that's just so interesting and taboo about people revealing to you the inner workings of their relationships. I mean, it has, it has been a trip, to say the least. <laughs> Marilyn Rocco is an online journalist with Global News. She's part of a Global News team who took an in-depth look at different types of unique relationships across Canada. Their series is called State of the Union. Here's the funny story about sort of the origin of the idea. It came from a story I came across months ago. Tiffany Trump had two friends who got married at the beginning of 2018, and they were very vocal about the fact that they were entering into a sexless marriage. Sort of the headlines around the story were that there were two people who were very good friends, had a very close connection, and decided to get married and were fully cognizant on both ends of entering into a marriage in which there would be no sex. Yeah, I remember that story from TMZ. That's not just any sexy flower girl tossing petals out of a Tiffany bag. It's first daughter Tiffany Trump in Vegas for her friend Quentin and PC's surprise wedding. The interesting part is these two are not dating. They're not in a relationship and they've never had sex. They just got married out of pure friendship. Uh, she posted this photo and she said, P.S. We never had sex. Congratulations, you two. Just one question. What? That seems really strange to me. Well, I mean, it's a very interesting concept, right? Because I do think that a lot of times we view that as kind of a joke. Women will often say with their gay friend, for example, like, oh, if we're still both single when we're 40, we're going to get married, you know? And I think it really sort of solidifies the concept of really just truly seeking companionship from a relationship. And it doesn't have to follow this very kind of traditional pattern that, you know, has been ingrained in us from the beginning of our lives that typically a man and a woman get together, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids. Now, of course, moving forward, our generations now that are coming up, they're obviously been more exposed to the idea that the nuclear family could involve two men or two women. But the idea is always the same, that it is this monogamous relationship that everything is shared, everything is done with that other partner, including sex. And they are two people that independently went out and found each other and came together. And I just don't think that that is really a very realistic representation of how relationships happen um, in the world, let alone in Canada. When I think of traditional relationships or the anecdotes that you hear in society so often, it's people and yeah, maybe typically men, but often women too, complaining that they don't get enough sex in their relationships, especially as the relationship matures and the marriage goes on. 
these couples that you spoke to who were in sexless relationships, I'm really curious to know what the benefits for them were. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because, you know, any sort of socially and, and casually, any conversations that I've had with friends and acquaintances about this um, series and, you know, when it, when sexless marriages come up, of course, the running joke is, well, isn't that all marriages? Like, you know, don't, doesn't everyone stop having sex when they get married? And obviously, you know, the answer is no. I don't think that most people stop having sex when they get married. I mean, sure, it can taper off a little bit maybe, but it's not a given that it will stop. But there is a subset of couples that are okay with being in a consensual sexist relationship. What we did um, with this series is we exclusively commissioned an Ipsos poll and they reached out to 1500 Canadians over the age of 18 to ask a number of questions about all of these relationship models that we've talked about and their perceptions of these relationship models. And what's interesting is that from the poll, we found that 19% of Canadians said that they and their partner rarely, if ever, have sex. And that is a significant number. On the opposite or seemingly opposite end of that spectrum is polyamorous relationships. And that's another subject that you explored in this series, too. Yeah, polyamory is really kind of fascinating. Certainly, I kind of went into the topic with some inherent unconscious biases, just thinking like, oh, it's kind of seedy. But the exact opposite came out of researching the topic and interviewing people who are poly. This is a model for people who just have the capacity to love so much. And the first thing I think that needs to be clarified about polyamory is that this is not consensual cheating. This is about seeking out a meaningful emotional relationship with one or multiple other people in addition to your partner. Now the they have there's a lot of terminology in the poly community and nesting partner for example is like there's a couple and they are each other's nesting partners, which means that they are kind of the originals in the couple and they may have certain rules that they abide by that they can't, you know, share with other people, Where whether it's certain behaviors or the other person is expected to use protection anytime they have sex with another partner. This is just your nesting partner is kind of like, you know, your OG partner and the dynamics of the relationship kind of, you know, get determined by, by that, by those two initial people. Now then it, of course it gets complicated because you start adding more people on and everybody else has their rules. But the point is that everyone is open. Everyone is honest. There's respect for everyone in this situation. And, you know, our experts have pointed out what's really kind of, kind of crazy is, you know, those of us who are in monogamous relationships, we have this one other person who we expect to get everything from. We want that person to be our best friend. We want that person to be our soulmate. We want that person to be our lover and the rock and all of these things that is kind of a lot to ask of one person. And so what poly people do as a result is they kind of lighten the load on everyone and it kind of gives a real opportunity for expression and growth and for a lot of love to proliferate. 
can you introduce me to the couple that you spoke to, the polyamorous couple that you spoke to, and tell me a bit about their specific story? Sure. Um, so I found this really lovely couple in Victoria. Uh, his name is Darren and her name is Donna. And they are each other's nesting partners. So they've been together for two years. Neither of us like to sleep around. I know that sounds odd about a, <laughs> in a polyamorous relationship, but it's to, to us it's not about sex. It's about... Um, actually connecting with other people. Darren is um, divorced. He married uh, when he was quite young, when he was 21. And as he said to me, which is very interesting, he was poly his entire life, but just didn't know it. I always felt I was polyamorous, um, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, I just thought I was a dog or a jerk. And so he had a very difficult time remaining faithful to anyone, including his wife. And it just made him feel terrible about himself. I didn't understand why I can be in love with one person and still be in love with another. I didn't lose my love for my wife for the person, uh, person that I also wanted to be with. Uh, I had a lot of guilt, um, suicide attempt, because I thought I was just a bad person. It sort of led him down a dark psychological path. So it wasn't until, you know, he tried to remain in his marriage and they split up and then they got back together when he realized that what he was experiencing wasn't just this need to have sex with multiple people, but that he also, he actually just wanted to have relationships with more than one person. And so that's when he discovered that he was in fact poly and not um, just kind of a, you know, an incorrigible cheater. Later on in life, when I'm hearing more about polyamory and more about that other people feel this way, it was like, oh, okay, I'm not just a screw up. You know, maybe other people feel this way and other people are okay with, you know, non-monogamy. And Donna is also divorced. Actually, I was in my teens when I realized that monogamy really just wasn't working for me. She was faithful in her marriage, but she knew the whole time when she was in her marriage that it just wasn't the right situation for her. I didn't cheat on him during our marriage, but I always felt like I was missing something. And when I started talking to him about it, he did not feel the same way. He did not agree. So um, that's one of the reasons I left. They also had a third partner who was a woman. And so they were living in a triad or a thruple and they were all involved with each other. So it was, um, there, there, was very, there were very much three people involved in the relationship because sometimes you can also have a scenario which they call a V, in which case there's one person in the relationship, you know, the principal person, and then there are two other people, but the principal person is the only one who engages in sex with the other two, whereas the two do not engage in sex with one another. So if you understand what I'm saying, it's think of it as a V with this one person in the middle. Um, whereas a thruple is all kind of intertwined. You know, we do have some things that we're not comfortable with yet. You know, when you have a new person come to a relationship, uh, like if she stayed overnight at some new person's house, I'd feel uncomfortable because jealousy sometimes happens. It does. We all deal with it. But that's the thing is you can deal with it without it being, you know, the end all be all. It doesn't have to be, I'm really jealous or I'm really envious and it's a horrible thing. Mm. It can be a self-improvement. That all sounds very different than what I understand polygamy to be, but I imagine the two often get confused. How do they differ by definition? 
Well, polygamy by definition is one man with multiple female partners. Now, how we understand polygamy in our society within the context of certain religions is that it is patriarchal and it is dictated by the norms and the rules of the religion. So how we see polygamy is it's the man who who dictates how the household is run. He is entitled to take on as many female partners as he wants. However, he is the only person allowed to engage in sex with the female partners. The female partners are not allowed to engage in sex with anyone else. And everybody has to abide by the dictates of the religion. So there is virtually no freedom for women in that scenario. They are not at liberty to uh, sort of live their own lives. They have to abide by very strict regulations. And so it is quite possibly the polar opposite of polyamory. Um, Polyamory is equal. It's open. There are same-sex partnerships in polyamory. And there is, you know, a freedom for people to, to do as they please, provided there is consensus with everyone else. So it is very communal. Polyamory seems pretty progressive to me. But there's one type of relationship model Marilisa looked at that has deep historical roots. In fact, it probably goes back as far in history as marriage itself does. And that is arranged marriage. So arranged marriages are very interesting because I think that we sort of inherently have this perception of what they are, that it is like, you know, usually a child bride who is thrust into this, um, you know, into this scenario with somebody and it's against her will. But in fact, that's not the case. We know that uh, approximately 60% of all marriages worldwide are arranged and 90% of marriages in India are arranged marriages. Our Ipsos poll found that one in 50 Canadians admitted that they were in an arranged marriage. Meet Loveline Cargill and Dave Singill. Seems like you no, know, so long ago. You know why? Why? Because it was. <laughs> They've been married for 34 years. Dave came from Canada, from Edmonton. We'd never met, and he walked in and he had a plaid shirt, jeans, and cowboy boots. And initially, I thought, absolutely not. But the other thing that we know, which is very interesting, is that the divorce rate for arranged marriage is very low. It's less than 4%, which is pretty shocking when you consider that in Canada, the average divorce rate is 48%. When I hear those statistics, the 4% divorce rate with arranged marriages, I wonder if that's proof that arranged marriages work or if it's more proof that the culture in which arranged marriages tend to occur doesn't accommodate divorce. Well, what's also interesting is that they said that compared to their friends who entered in, you know, they call them love marriages. So any any marriage that isn't arranged is referred to as a love marriage. You know, they said that there was immediately more of a commitment to making it work. When you have an arranged marriage, at least at the time that we did, your boundaries are set first, then you make it work. Your boundaries are that you're married now, 
and you're going to love this person and you're going to do everything within your power to make it work. I really didn't know what it would entail or, you know, I'd, I'd grown up with the concept of falling in love with somebody. And this is like you get to know the person, then you fall in love with them. It was meant to be kind of thing because um, I remember when he came back to Canada, it was like, I felt like something was missing, like an arm or a limb, or my heart was missing. Like when he came back, I just knew that I had to be with him. Arrange now is exchanging emails. Contact one so person, see if you can, you know, if you're gonna make a go of it, fine. I mean, you kind of leave it at that, right? You know, the people that we spoke to who were in arranged marriages, and I'm talking about, you know, couples who have been married for 25 years and couples who've been married for two years, they all are exceptionally happy, they feel fortunate to have found this person and they don't feel that there was anything wrong or unmodern about the way that they went about finding their spouse. I, you know, would have recommended it to anyone, but I've seen some arranged marriages that don't work out and some that have, and we were one of the lucky ones. Then there's couples who live apart by choice. Now, this group is called LAT, L-A-T, Living Apart Together. A 2011 survey said nearly 2 million Canadians choose to live this way. I don't think that it'll surprise you to hear the majority of LAT or L-A-T couples are younger, in their mid-20s or so. I think that makes sense. However, there's a growing demographic in this group who are in that 60-plus age range. Yes, I spoke to this really wonderful couple. The, the woman, Marilyn, lives in Montreal and her partner, David, lives in Vermont. And they've been together for 24 years. To me, it's a wonderful way to live. You get your autonomy and your independence. They are just unbelievably happy and they could not talk more highly about their arrangement. I like the compartmentalization. You, know, you can really focus on one thing. And they are very opposite personalities. We are very, very, very different people with very different rhythms. She's very sort of vivacious and boisterous, and he is quite reserved and, you know, kind of a man of few words. So I think this allows us to be together because... I think we really enhance each other and complement each other and take each other to places that we wouldn't go on our own. But on the other hand, I think we both need times to go back into our own world. Yeah, you are very much an extrovert. I am very much an introvert. But what's really interesting is even after 24 years, they talk about the anticipation of seeing one another and I mean David is he was so cute and he told a story about how one time he was so excited to to be heading to Montreal to see Marilyn that he forgot to pack his clothes and so he drove all the way to Montreal and got there and realized he had no clothing and so he had to like wear her clothes all weekend um, but you know for him it was just that like this he just could not wait to get there to see her and I think that that's you know a really interesting that's an interesting kind of aspect that we don't really think about. I mean, that's the sort of thing that we associate with young love and, you know, young people and, you know, they first get together and, but it's not something that needs to die necessarily. Like that, that anticipation and that excitement can, can thrive. 
Well, I remember the first time I heard my parents say that they often slept in separate bedrooms. And I thought that was so strange because in my mind, that's not what I imagine married couples to do. Married couples share a bedroom. But I think that's actually more common than I originally perceived it to be. And this just seems like a slightly more extreme example of that. Yeah, I mean, they call it a sleep divorce. What your parents had was a sleep divorce. You know, sleeping in separate beds is actually beneficial for a relationship. And I mean, when you think about it, if one person snores or the other person or one person is a kicker or, you know, is always stealing the blankets, I mean, doesn't everybody just wake up happier if they sleep in separate beds? This is such an interesting model that that helps you to really helps us to question what a union really needs to look like, Um, because a union does not need to be two people living under the same roof at all times. What's interesting is that one of the people that we interviewed said that marriage has evolved from being a contract that was done in order to ensure sort of um, social and economic protection for women in particular. And what has happened is that it has evolved. And I mean, and we have evolved as a society. Women don't need to get married to have economic, you know, security. They don't need a man around all the time in order to ensure physical security. So what this model actually does is it gives each member of the couple the the freedom and the possibility to provide those sort of basic needs for themselves. And then when they come together, they can work on those more high level needs. They've got time to work on that when they come together because separately they do that other stuff on their own. I mean, these couples say that they never fight about money because each is responsible for their own money and for their own living situation. And so, you know, most couples will say, what a relief to get together and not have to fight about money. If you want to learn more about couples who live apart together, couples who are polyamorous, have arranged marriages, sexless relationships, and more, check out Marilisa and the Global News team's work at globalnews.ca. Marilisa, thank you so much for talking to me. That was really insightful. Yeah, my pleasure. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. If you like this episode, follow us on Twitter at This Is Why or send us an email. This is why at globalnews.ca. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to give us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Friday. Oh, 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 oh,